good morning. <clears throat> I want to begin this morning, before I dive into the sermon, by reading a quote I read a few days ago from one New Testament scholar. His name is Bill Mounts. Um, and I think he might actually be quoting John Stott when he says this, but he says this, nevertheless. He says, We must allow the word to confront us, disturb our security, undermine our complacency, and overthrow our patterns of fault. And I wanted to read this this morning because it was a helpful reminder for me this week of how the word is intended to confront us. And I want to encourage all of us as we turn to the word of God this morning, and even as we read the word of God throughout this week and so forth, that we would allow the word of God to work on us. If we understand it correctly, in a lot of ways, it's going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to make us uneasy. But my general pleading is that we wouldn't listen to the sinister whisper of Satan who says, did God really say that? But that we would listen to God on his own terms. It's how he speaks to us through his word. So with that said, like we've been doing over the past month, we're continuing to work through the Sermon on the Mount this week. Last week, we finished up the Beatitudes, uh, looking at what it means to be pure in heart, a peacemaker, and persecuted. And this week, we're continuing by looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Have the text printed in your bulletin, and so I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so please follow along with me as I read. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to their, your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this ministry, this mission, rather, of being salt and light in the world. I pray that as we dive into this text today, uh, that you would confront us wherever we're at, um, either if we need humbled, that you would humble us. If we need uplifted, that you would do that as well, knowing that your spirit, as it works through us today, is able to accomplish all that you set out to do. And so we pray that the word would work powerfully on our hearts, on our minds. Uh, we love you, and we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, to reiterate what we said <clears throat> just about each week now when we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount, and to remind us of the proper context for the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing his disciples. In 5.1, we read that Jesus sat down and his disciples came to him. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he, then he proceeds by giving them, his disciples, an ethic for the kingdom. He tells them what kingdom living is really all about. And throughout the sermon, Jesus calls his disciples to examine their hearts and where they, what they prize the most and where they place their utmost affections. As we'll begin to see next week, he, over, he also begins to overturn popular rabbinic interpretations. And then as we'll see in a few weeks when Jeff's back, he even gives his disciples a model of how to pray. And while our text today contributes to this overall purpose of expounding upon life in the kingdom and giving his disciples a kingdom ethic, Jesus does something unique in our passage today. In effect, he pulls back the curtain and he reminds them, his disciples, and us that there is a watching world. Let's again visualize the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. In 5.1, even though Jesus calls his disciples to him and instructs his disciples, we also learn that there's a crowd sort of hovering in the background. 
And if the presence of the crowd isn't clear enough in 5.1, by the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, 7.28 through 29, we read that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Now, the implication here is obvious. It's that the crowds have overheard everything that Jesus has told his disciples and that they were close enough to hear. Thus, in our text this morning, it's almost as if Jesus is subtly reminding his disciples, us as the readers too, that there is a crowd around us. This will be like me turning to one of the elders right now and saying something like, Vic, you're an elder, and as an elder, one of, one of the things you do is shepherd, you help shepherd the congregation. Both Vic and I know that as I say this, there are others surrounding us, as Vic and I have this conversation, who are hearing to whom this, it's, these instructions apply. So when we look at this passage, Jesus is telling us, essentially, they don't live for themselves. Disciples of Christ don't just live for themselves. The Christian life isn't just about developing a robust kingdom ethic for oneself and for the Christian community, as important as that is. Jesus' point is that there is a world out there that's watching. And we have disciple, we as disciples have a responsibility to look outside ourselves and consider the impact we're called to have on a world that's hungering for meaning and purpose. Anytime this topic, though, of mission, we'll call it, is broached in the church, I sense there's often angst amongst believers regarding the degree to which we're supposed to be in the world and the degree to which we're to be separate from the world. I think that's a pretty common feeling a lot of us have. On the one hand, we as believers have to be distinct from the world. There's no way around that. We're a countercultural people. And in fact, as we'll see from this text, very shortly when we dive into verse 13, Jesus tells us that we won't be effective on our mission unless we are a distinct people. Yet on the other hand, this text reminds us that we have a mission that reaches into the deepest and darkest recesses of the world. From the most hostile nations towards Christianity to the most hostile parts of your neighborhood. This passage holds both a, both a robust purity for disciples while also highlighting the breadth of our mission. And it holds both things in tension. In one sense, it might make those, who fall to, those of us who fall to either extreme somewhat uncomfortable or maybe uneasy. So, in effect, what I want to show us today from this text is that Jesus calls his disciples, he calls you and I as believers in Christ to consider the crowds around us. This is a fancy way of saying that Jesus calls his disciples to engage the world on mission. And Jesus calls us as his disciples to enter the world by one, being uniquely pure, and two, being uniquely penetrating. So first, Jesus calls us as his disciples to enter the world by being uniquely pure. And I get this from verse 13, and let me read this text again. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, scholars have identified 11 different uses of salt in the ancient world, and many of these uses can be identified in Scripture. And as thrilling as it would be if I went through right now and explained all 11 uses of salt. In fact, I once watched a documentary on salt mines. So this will be a thrilling endeavor for me, I know. Again, you're getting an insight into some of my awkward humor I talked about last week. Um, so, but instead, I'll, I'll just give you the answer. The likely use of salt in this passage is as a purifying agent. Hence the header for this main point. Jesus uses the metaphor of salt here 
to communicate that as we enter the world, and the assumption is that we would enter the world, we must, be, we must both be pure and act as a purifying agent. And we see this use of salt, just to reinforce my point here, we see this use of salt reflected in several places in the Old Testament. Salt was symbolically used to purify sacrifices that were offered to God. I think we see this in like Leviticus 2 or somewhere. And then in 2 Kings, we see Elijah throw salt into a spring of water to symbolically purify the water. So salt as a purifying agent is well attested in the Old Testament, not only in those texts, but elsewhere too. So when Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth in this passage, he's communicating that one, we have a role to play in this world. And two, we, the role we play is as a purifying agent that brings purification to a corrupt world. And we'll talk about what this looks like shortly in practice. But there's also a caution that Jesus injects into the metaphor. In order to remain purifying agents, in order to remain really effective on our mission, we must remain pure. We have to maintain our saltiness. Literally, when Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, and your translation may say something different, but it's getting at the same thing, a literal rendering of that would be, if salt becomes foolish or ignorant. And the point is that disciples are purifying agents who must remain committed to the ethics of the kingdom to remain effective. If we become morally or spiritually foolish or ignorant, neglecting the ethics of the kingdom, especially as it's expounded in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we just won't be effective. In fact, the metaphor suggests we'll even be counterproductive in our mission to the world. Well, one of the best illustrations of this relationship between being a purifying agent and being pure, I think, comes when we consider Israel and their mission in the Old Testament. When Israel was called out of Egypt and delivered by God in the Exodus, they were given an identity. They were the people of God, and now they had a unique role to play as the people of God. One text I want to turn to right now, I'm going to be reading a few texts today, so just bear with me. If you want to turn there, feel free, uh, but if not, you can follow along. One, the first text I'm going to turn to today is Exodus 19, 4 through 6, just to illustrate this. This takes place after God has already delivered Israel from Egypt, and now Israel is at Mount Sinai, and God charges Moses to say this to the people of Israel. Charges, he charges Moses to say this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Sort of reminiscent of our text we read this morning, or Vic read this morning, First Peter 2. God calls his people a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The nation as a whole had a mediating role to play as priests. That was part of their mission. Now, although we learn that within Israel, as we continue going throughout the Pentateuch, that there was a special role of priests assigned to Aaron and his sons, who offered sacrifices on behalf of Israel in both the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple, the whole nation of Israel was also priestly in a somewhat similar but distinct manner. Israel was a nation of priests that mediated God's presence. They, were the mediate, they had a mediating role between God and all of the surrounding nations of the earth. They had a unique relationship to the Lord 
and their uniqueness, their set-apartness, was intended to draw the other nations to worship God, the one true God. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, I'm not going to read it, but it's, a, it's another text that's more explicit in Israel's missional calling. <clears throat> Feel free to look up this text on your own if you want. But the point in this text is that, is that um, as Israel, Israel is called to embody the law and the decrees of the Lord, to live in, as, in a distinct manner among the surrounding nations. And as they lived in a distinct manner among the surrounding nations, the nations would hear about the decrees of the Lord. And as this text reads, they would respond, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. Using the language of Matthew, Israel was called to be salt of the earth. They were called to be a purifying agent in the land. And through their exclusive worship to God, and by living a life that embodied the demands of God, as we see throughout the Pentateuch, they would, be, they would implicitly be calling the other nations around them to relinquish their gods and their idolatry and come worship the one true God. But they couldn't carry out this mission unless they were singly devoted to God and lived a life that reflected this single devotion the one true God. When Israel succumbed to Baal worship and the practices of the other nations, as we learn throughout their expansive history, they became ineffective and were eventually led into exile. So it's vital that we as disciples of Christ remain pure in our devotion to the Lord, or else we just won't be effective as purifying agents. Now, please throw out this caveat. Don't hear me as saying in this text that um, Jesus warns that Christians can lose their salvation here. True believers can't lose their salvation. We learn that from the rest of Scripture. This text, though, isn't even hinting at that. Jesus is simply warning us that it's vital that we maintain our saltiness in our mission that we're called towards, or else we just won't be effective. In fact, Jesus suggests in this text that if we lose our, if we don't maintain our saltiness, we may even become influenced by the world, just as Israel was influenced by the nations. So, we are the purifying agents for the world, as Jesus tells us. And to remain effective as purifying agents, we also must remain pure. But what does this look like in practice? What does it mean to be pure as salt? And how are we, as disciples of Christ, supposed to be pure, purifying agents in this world? Well, to answer the first question, and really to reiterate a point I made last week, to remain pure isn't walking around with a glowing halo on our heads. I said this last week as it pertains to being pure in heart, and I think the same applies to this text today, too. Jesus isn't calling his disciples. He's not calling you and I to some type of sinless perfection that we can't achieve. To answer the question in simple terms, to remain pure as salt means that we pay attention to the Beatitudes, as we've been describing over the last month. This would have been the immediate application made by the readers, the original readers of Matthew and the original hearers as Jesus is expounding upon this. The Beatitudes, as we've said throughout the last month, are a description of a disciple. It's what a disciple is. A disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness. A disciple is single-mindedly devoted to the Lord. A disciple is a peacemaker who who, who reconciles relationships. In short, we maintain our saltiness We maintain our purity as disciples when we attend to the description of a disciple found in the Beatitudes and live our lives as a countercultural people, whether we're at work, at school, at home, wherever God calls us to live. But what about being purifying 
agents, agents of change or agents of redemption in the world. How do we do this? Well, again, I think the first thing, we pay attention to the Beatitudes. When we looked at the Beatitudes, we observed in several places that they aren't about just individual holiness. Just last week, when we examined the disciple who is a peacemaker, we noted that the disciple makes peace between two warring parties. The disciple takes risk and enters into relationships in order to reconcile people both to one another and to God. In effect, when we're peacemakers in the world, both redemptively settling disputes and even through our evangelism and our Christian witness among our neighbors, our work colleagues, wherever God calls us, in effect, we're acting as salt. And this is just one application of it. But being salt isn't just about having some generic role that anybody else can play. We've been given, as believers, as disciples of Christ, we've been given a unique role that nobody else shares outside the body of believers. This is a subtle distinction, but I think it's important. It's maybe even a bold statement, too. Grammatically, for both salt and light in this passage, when we read, disciples are salt and light, the article is attached to both terms here. We're not only salt and light, but we are the salt, and we're the light. This suggests we have a unique role to play. There's something unique about us as disciples that nobody else can play. This suggests that as we creatively enter the world as salt, there has to be something unique about us, distinct about us. There has to be something even redemptive about us. We have something to offer that nobody else can. So as we enter the world... As we embody the ethics of the kingdom, as we remain pure entering the world, let's stand up for the oppressed. Let's stand against the many injustices of the world, and there are many. Let's boldly stand in the place of the oppressed, and let's be a voice for those who are just enslaved around the world. We need to do these things as Christians. We can't just skirt over these things. These are necessary things to do as our calling as Christians. But as we boldly stand against corrupt human structures, whatever they may be, let's let's also offer something. Let's offer the only thing that can actually revive the dead. Let's offer a love that goes beyond mere accommodation and postmodern assumptions where you have your truth and I have mine, and let's offer the gospel of the kingdom the best thing that the people of God, the best thing that you and I have to offer as disciples of Christ. So whatever sphere we find ourselves in, whether it's at work, at home, at school, wherever we are, let's live as salt. Living our lives by embodying the countercultural distinctives of the Beatitudes. Living our lives standing against corrupt human structures and societies, whatever they are, but also by offering the one thing that no else really can offer, and that's the promises of God received through faith and repentance. Well, one final point before we move on. Being, a, being the salt of the earth reminds us of our responsibility on mission, definitely does that as disciples, but it's also a great encouragement because Jesus tells us in this passage, he tells his disciples that we're beloved, that we have worth as disciples. We're given something that no other people are given, the mission of the Father. And as we'll now begin to explore, Jesus tells us that the extent of our mission as salt and light knows no bounds. So this leads us to our next point. Jesus calls us into the world by being uniquely penetrating. Let me read again verses 14 14 through 16. 
Where the text reads, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, if the metaphor of salt pertains to our purifying characteristics of our disciple, of disciples, reminding us that if we're going to have a positive impact on the world, if we're going to do something, we have to remain pure. The metaphor of light, then, in effect, gives us a picture into the breadth and the depth of our calling. Jesus calls us light, and light overcomes darkness wherever it shines. And our role of light is to shine as disciples into the deepest and darkest recesses of the world. Well, first, I want to show that there's this distinction to be made in this text between the terms earth and world that I think really gets at the expanse of our mission. I'm going to explain that. In verse 13, we read that disciples are salt of the earth or salt of the land. Your translations might say something different. Either would be appropriate. And then here in verse 14, we read that the disciples are light to the world. Now, the original hearers and the reading audience of this text would have been Jewish Christians reading Matthew, and they would have keyed in on these terms. They would have drawn a connection to earth or better land to the land that Israel was promised in the covenant. And the word world would have reminded them of those nations, those nations of Gentiles that surrounded the land of Israel, and even the Gentiles that are, lived among them at the time. Well, one commentator, Scott McKnight, points out, the, points out these terms, noting that Jesus' use of earth or land is a call for the Jewish Christians hearing these words to consider their local mission among their fellow Jews. Whereas the use of world in this text is a call for the Jewish Christian audience to consider the nations that lay at the far ends of the known world, and even, again, the Gentiles in their midst. It's a call for these Jewish Christians, in effect, this use of world is a call for Jewish Christians to consider those who are much different than themselves. By use of this term, world, as simple as it is, Jesus highlights the holistic mission of Jesus' disciples. So for us chewing on this passage, specifically what it means to be light of the world, this is a call for us, disciples of Christ, to consider all types of people. Consider again the first century Jewish Christian audience reading this and the animosity in the first century between Jews and Gentiles. We read examples of this hostile relationship throughout the letter, literature of the intertestamental period and then even into the New Testament. In short, the average Jew didn't care very much for the Gentiles. Yet Jesus calls his disciples, he calls these Jewish Christians to be a light to the Gentiles to shine among the very people that were occupying their land. So let's mull over this metaphor of light a little bit more. What does it mean for us to be light? Well, Matthew already introduced the reader to the metaphor of light earlier in his gospel. So to understand the metaphor in the most immediate way that Matthew intended, let's go one chapter back in the gospel of Matthew. And I just I want to read one text for us, and that's uh, Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Again, feel free to turn there if you want, but just the important thing is just follow along with me as I read. Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Jesus says, now the text reads, Now when he, this is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, 
in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I know I'm reading this text, and it's not even Christmas, so um, a little bit radical here, but I think it illustrates the point well. Now, Matthew quotes from Isaiah in this text. So we read Matthew 4, 12 through 17, but Matthew himself is actually quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. And this metaphor of light is quite pervasive. It's pervasive throughout the throughout scripture, but it's also a pervasive theme in Isaiah. It's often used, light is often used in Isaiah of a, as a metaphor of Israel or the Messiah manifesting the glory of God among the Gentiles. Thus, in Matthew 4, when Matthew applies this text to Jesus, he's saying that Jesus is the true light that shines among the Gentiles. And this idea of, a, as, of Jesus as a light to the nations is, again, a pervasive theme in the New Testament. In John 1, for instance, John equates Jesus with the light that penetrates darkness and gives life. So all of this information leads us back to our text this morning. And when Jesus calls his disciples the light, he is essentially telling us that we have a derivative ministry. We, as disciples, can only be light in as much as we are in Christ. When Christ calls his disciples the light, he gives us the honor of his ministry, calls us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to live as disciples in every way the Beatitudes described, and importantly here, the important point that I'm trying to get at is to do all of these things into the deepest and darkest recesses of both our world and our neighborhoods. <clears throat> Consider for a second John's words in John 1.9. He says that the true light, who's Jesus, came into the world. As those of us who share in this light, as disciples of Christ, we are the light now that penetrates the darkness. And we're called to penetrate the darkness into our world, into our nation, into our communities, in ways that may even make us very uncomfortable or uneasy. But we're called to be uniquely penetrating because our Lord was uniquely penetrating. How, more, how much more uniquely penetrating can you get than the incarnation? Well, like a peacemaker enters into the awkward tension and uneasiness for the sake of peace, as light... You and I are called to consider those people we just don't normally associate with, either because we don't think God could change a certain type of person or because uh, we're uneasy, scared, or intimidated to approach a certain type of person, whoever that person might be for you. And I need to hear this myself too. But wherever God calls you or I to be a light, to radically enter into the darkness, in whatever relationships he places before us, Jesus' call here is actually a great comfort, too. To reiterate what we've already said, it's a great comfort to know that we share in the mission of God. Transformation is ultimately God's prerogative. It's not up to us to ultimately affect change in one's heart. And this is good news. It's up to God, and God promises he'll do so. But second, the other comfort of sharing in this mission of God is that we already know the ending. That's pretty good. 
There's a metaphor in this passage that I've passed by, but I want to come back to now um, to close our time with. And it's this metaphor of a city on a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, we read in verse 14. Well, a few comments, first of all, on this metaphor. First, being a city on a hill, I think, removes any form of individualism. One commentator, R.T. France, writes this. He says, The combined impact of many lights which make up a town at night illustrates more appropriately than the single lamp of verse 15 the corporate effect of the disciple community on the surrounding darkness. So if you're picturing a city on a hill, it's not just one light, it's many lights corporately shining together. Being the light of the world may cause us to consider our mission individually. And while it's good that we have personal relationships with those who are much different than us individually, this metaphor, I think, causes us or asks us to consider what it would be like as a community, with your community group or with your family or with other families, to be a light, a city on a hill corporately. The American church is good enough at individualism. We've mastered that. So let's consider how we can join together as a community in being uniquely penetrating into those deepest and darkest parts of our world and our community. But returning back to this metaphor of city on a hill again, this is actually an allusion or a connection here to Isaiah 2. One scholar who I like, Michael Goheen, he puts it like this. He says, together the images of light, which we've already read, and city refer to the eschatological Jerusalem, and eschatological is a fancy name for the last days, to make it simple, which the prophets foretell will one day be raised above all of the mountains and illuminate the nations with its lights. Now, I know I've read already throughout today quite a few passages of scripture, but I have one more for us to chew on, um, and it's from Isaiah 2. So let me read real briefly from Isaiah 2, 2 through 5, and I think it illustrates this well. Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, this incredible vision of the nations flocking to the mountain of the Lord is true even now. The nations, those from the most diverse corners of the world, are worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. And this vision proclaims that we as the people of God can take confidence in the fact that the ending to this grand narrative of Scripture, which is really our story, involves the most diverse set of people, representatives, a remnant from all nations. Our Lord is the light who draws this remnant to himself, a remnant from all nations, from all corners of the earth, from all the corners even, a remnant from those those corners of our neighborhoods to him. And as disciples who are his agents of redemption, who share in this light, we have the privilege and the honor of witnessing firsthand the Lord do his work of drawing all peoples, a remnant from all peoples, to himself. Well, in conclusion, we have been called on mission as disciples of Christ. But as disciples on mission, 
we must first of all remember our call of being uniquely pure. There needs to be something unique about us and the way we live and the things we offer to the world. But second, we're also uniquely penetrating. Being a disciple on mission means that we enter the darkness of relationships with people who are far from the Lord. It means that we, we sacrificially do so. We sacrificially love And it may even mean that we take up our calling to go to the nations ourselves. I don't know. Maybe some of you are called to go to the nations. But as we do so, as we're on mission for God, as we're agents of redemption, as disciples of Christ, we take comfort by reminding ourselves of God's promise. The same promise he issues at the ending of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He is with us. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for this great comfort that you are with us, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you, that um, transformation is your prerogative. And yet at the meantime, Lord, we, we, ask that you would, um, we ask that you would put it on our hearts, those people who are far from the Lord, who you might be calling us to today, whether in our neighborhood, whether in the nations, wherever they may be, in whatever sphere of life we live. And Lord, that ultimately we would take um, joy in the fact that you've chosen to use us that you've chosen to show us this grand narrative and that you've even shown us the ending, Lord. We thank you, and we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.